guys are too much. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Larry Jacobs, faculty here at the Humphrey School in Political Science, and I want to welcome you to the uh, Hubert H. Humphrey School, which is the University of Minnesota School of Public Affairs. Um, quick word about uh, upcoming events. Um, if you didn't get one of these, uh, please feel free, they're at the door. Uh, just to look ahead a little bit, we've got Charlie Savage coming in Monday. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the New York Times covering issues like presidential power and the Constitution and the law. A lot there. He'll be joined with Walter Mondale, who's made those issues um, the work of his career. Um, and then the 23rd, Tom Friedman's coming in. Um, we're going to have a great conversation starting with uh, um, uh, kind of rural communities and some ideas that he has about revitalization. Um, Mary Jo Kane, who's a kind of a seminal thinker about women in sport is going to be in. Uh, we're going to have, that's going to be lively. Um, then the beginning of October, we have an event on civic engagement and business community. Um, Mid-October, uh, Ramesh Ponaru, who's a senior editor at uh, William Buckley's um, uh, uh, National Review, will be in to talk about uh, the conservative movement and Donald Trump and what's coming. Um, we're going to have, and I'm not going to go through all these, but we've got programs coming up on healthcare, um, a whole program on voting by young people. Um, we have a program on media bias and what that looks like. And then um, my colleague, Catherine Pearson, has um, a program in uh, November on women in politics. So lots coming up. We're very excited about it. Um, uh, I want to tell you, this is a a forum, we want to get you involved in the conversation. We do use written cards, and the reason is not to filter out questions, objections. We have a, a positive bias towards those kind of questions. The only reason we do this is because it helps us gain access to broadcasts by other media, because when you have voices in the audience, it becomes harder for the media to edit, it takes time. Um, and it's one of the reasons that so many of our programs are broadcast on public radio and other uh, forum. I am very excited about today's program. How many of you have got one of these strange things in your pockets? <laughs> so you're producing data. You're producing a lot of data. And lots of people are interested in your data. And of course, that's not the only example. We could go through a whole series of examples. If you were on Facebook, um, you know, you've got two billion folks who are on Facebook using it all the time. If you're on Amazon and just looking at things, data, data, data. We are in the age of data. And this has led to all sorts of really interesting opportunities and questions and concerns. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, what are the opportunities, the concerns, the possibilities, both for um, geeks like me, but also for our society and really trying to settle or at least getting some insight into the big problems we're facing. Uh, today we have uh, Gary King. Um, folks who are in the social sciences will know Gary King. He is a seminal figure. It's hard to write uh, an empirical paper and not cite Gary King. He is just uh, a leader uh, in the area of empirical research and methods. Uh, he's at Harvard. I'm not going to go through his 
biography, which is handily right here in the back. But I just want to tell you, there are no other Gary Kings. This is singular. Um, and I don't, those of you who come, don't hear me say that. Uh, we're very grateful to have Gary King here. And one of the things that I'm particularly proud about uh, what Gary's doing is that he is moving from the enclave of the university, which is frankly a comfortable place once you're a senior uh, professor, out into the real world and trying to put together uh, real world po uh, partnerships um, and making, um, contributing his voice to an important issue in which there's a lot of controversy. So congratulations and thank you for that. Please give a warm welcome to Professor Gary King. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, thanks for the inf introduction. If you want to keep going, that's okay with me. Uh, um, so I'm going to uh, talk about um, uh, sort of a, maybe this is not a good spot. I'm going to talk about a political science innovation, sort of like a new constitution that solves a problem of data sharing between academia and private industry so that uh, academics can uh, learn new things, uh, the public can get uh, more information, um, and private industry can make their contribution too. The big picture is that the social sciences, like what's our job? It's about understanding and solving the greatest problems that affect human society. That's at least what I tell my mom. Um, our project is designed to uh, obtain the data to advance this mission. Um, and the cool thing is you and I get to be a part of this. Um, what is it that we're going to try to solve or, or understand or learn something about? Well, it's sharing fake news, uh, misinformation, um, uh, foreign influence in the U.S. elections, um, uh, well-being and, and uh, in, in various measures of well-being in public health and things like that. Um, Imagine astronomy without the ability to have telescopes. It just wouldn't work, right? So the only way that we can actually learn about the people that we, that we study is to have some information, some data, some data, some data from them. Um, <clears throat> uh, social scientists once created pretty much all of our data and pretty much all the data in the world, or we obtained it from governments or, or purchased it from firms. Nowadays, most of the data in the world exists outside of academia. Um, students can scra scrape the web and make big data sets, and we have more data than ever before, and that has created spectacular discoveries. It's a really terrific thing. But we have a smaller fraction of the data in the world than ever before, because most of it is locked up inside private companies. Most of the information about the people and processes and, <clears throat> and companies and groups and, and, and all the bad things and all the good things that you all are interested in uh, most of the information about all that is actually collected now by private companies to which academics do not have access, right? So, um, you know, they, they, uh, so what, what is that about? Well, um, uh, uh, we, like, in order to deal with this problem, with this issue, um, from a social science point of view, uh, uh, we have to figure out how to work with them. Right? I mean, it can't just be that they have the most informative information about, the, about people that could be used to solve the problems that are essential for society, that the public really wants the answers to, and we don't, get, we don't get any access to answer them because the companies are not in the business of answering those questions. Right? Um, that's not what they're doing. So we, so we should ask, even though they have the data, they could just hand it over, right? Um, 
And the question is, um, why should they help us? I mean, these firms are legally required to, to spend all of their time maximizing shareholder value. That's what they do. They're, they're constructed that way. Um, if they don't, if the people in the company don't maximize shareholder value, they all get fired. However, those companies are filled with real people, often our former students, and they actually would like to do some good. Also, there's a question about whether uh, doing something that might help the reputation of the company in the long run, like helping academics have access to data like this to answer some of these important questions, might be better even for shareholder value than just doing something in the short run that brings in more revenue today. Um, you know, obviously we're pushing in a particular direction because we think that this could really help society um, uh, and, and it can really help. But I think this can also help these companies. Big tech companies in particular have enormously intrusive data on, um, as Larry said, you know, billions of people. Um, they, and some even think they have monopolies. Um, they therefore, I think, have a responsibility to do some things to help society in addition to what it is that they were constructed and, uh, and formed to do. AT&T did this when they formed Bell Labs. Microsoft did this when they were the big, uh, the, the, the big company on the block and they, they created Microsoft Research. IBM created IBM Research. Uh, uh, Xerox created Xerox PARC. There's lots and lots of examples. If they don't do something, government may very well take away this uh, money-making machine that they have through regulation. So we wanna help them do their job. They could help us do our job and we could benefit all of, all of society. Um, so we have to really understand them. I mean, I sometimes, we sometimes have naive graduate students calling up a company and saying, hey, do you have any research data? And the answer is, no, no, we don't have any research data, we're a company, and so then they hang up. But of course, that's crazy, right? This, this, this organization and every organization has data that can be used for research. The HR, uh, the, the, the HR group within the University of Minnesota so at some point in the last 10 years installed a new HR system and the finance people installed a new finance system and the air conditioning people and the roads and grounds people installed new air conditioning and roads and ground systems. And those systems now come with an extra little spigot and out of that spigot spews data. And it's easy to hook up the system if you can work out the political issues, which is not a minor matter. Um, to, to create enormous public good over and above the HR and finance and air conditioning and roads and grounds issues that those systems create, okay? If we can figure out incentive-compatible ways of doing it, then it can really help everybody. So there's some balancing involved, but I, I'm not really interested in balancing. I'm interested in coming up with incentive-compatible ways that helps all, helps this, the organization doesn't get in their way, enables them to accomplish their objectives perhaps even better than before, and also enables us to get access to information that can help us solve some of the greatest problems that affect human society. Um, so, um, you know, when I go visit companies, um, they're treated to Gary trying to convince them to uh, make, to liberate their data. <laughs> um, and I was visiting Facebook uh, a little more than a year ago, trying to convince them to do the same, and I had been doing that for many years, and it was not entirely successful. Um, <clears throat> on the Sunday when I'm in my hotel room packing, I get an email from my, my uh, contacts at Facebook that say, hey, what do you think we should do about this? And this was Cambridge Analytica, which was the biggest scandal 
in, in quite some time. Uh, uh, it was an academic that violated his personal responsibility and gave the, gave, his, gave the data to a private company that created that scandal. So this was the worst timed lobby event in the history of the world. <laughs> um, anyway, I said fine, I went home. Um, a few days later they called me back and they said, hey Gary, could you do a study of the 2016 election and tell everybody we didn't change the outcome or maybe if we did something wrong tell us what that is and we'll change it like really fast? Um, the, the, that was quite a big scandal, right? Um, and I said, I thought about it and I said, I'd love to do that study, but I need two things and I think you're only gonna give me one, okay? So the two things I need is all, all access to all the data and people and processes and platforms. Things that you give your employees, of course, you know, they have to have access to that to do their job. But I need a second thing. I need academic freedom. I need the ability to publish without pre-publication approval by the company, and no employee at a major company has, has that at all. And so they said, oh, you're right, we won't give you both of those. And I said, okay, that's great, I'm not doing the study. <laughs> and they said, no, no, we still want you to do the study. And I said, okay, give me both of those. And they said, no, we can't give you both of those. How about you do the study anyway? And, I, and we, so we went back and forth like that a few times. And finally I said, okay, wait a minute, how about this? And this was convincing. So let me explain what this was. So instead of giving me both of those things, instead of giving me access to data and no pre-publication approval by the company, we'll create two groups, two separate groups. Each one will get one of those. One group is, is a set of, and this is the sort of constitutional design issue, right? So, and it's also an incentive compatible mechanism. That's the idea, no balancing, okay? So there's two groups. One group is a set of outside academics that apply the way they would normally apply for grants for data access. They write proposals, they get IRB approval, institutional review board approval about the appropriateness of the research from their, their university. They send in the proposal, there's peer review, we, did a, we do a special merit peer review uh, and, 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 and a special ethics peer review. They send it in, okay? Um, uh, th then, who makes the decisions, okay? The final decisions are made by the second group. The second group is a, is a commission, a commission at an organization we set up called Social Science One. You can look at it on the web, socialscience.one.one. That's a, it's a website, okay? Um, so this is a group of senior distinguished uh, academics who have agreed not to publish and have signed papers not to publish on the basis of the research. So they're doing a public service. Okay. They, take the, they take the recommendations from the peer reviewers and they make the final decisions. The final decisions because they know some stuff inside Facebook that, that, um, you know, that can't be public. For example, if there's a secret lawsuit about a particular topic and someone wrote a terrific proposal that the peer reviewers said was really great, we, we absolutely have to do this research, but, the, but it's actually on the same subject that this lawsuit is on and if we gave access to that researcher, they would be deposed for weeks and weeks and weeks and we'd mess up their whole lives, right? They're not getting, the, they're not getting data access, <laughs> okay? So and there's various other reasons that we can keep an incentive compatible. The commission at Social Science One of these senior distinguished academics is intended to be a trusted third party. That's the idea, so a trusted third party that understands the incentives of Facebook and understands the incentives of academics and stands up for academics at Facebook and stands up for Facebook with the academics. So that's the idea. That was convincing to them. So here's how it works. Collectively, with Facebook, we agree on the scope of the project. 
the, the agreed upon scope here was the effect of social media on elections and democracy. This was basically the most incendiary topic we could possibly choose, so that's what we chose. <laughs> that's a joke, actually, but. <laughs> um, it was, of course, the topic that everybody really wanted to know, right? That's what we really want to know. What's the effect of social media on our elections, on our democracy? <clears throat> Facebook is a, a new organization of human beings, it, organized in a way that has never happened before in the history of the world. The idea that they would get it wrong sometimes in spectacular ways is not a surprise, right? I mean, how could you possibly get something like that right the first time? I just think we had better know right away, okay? Um, <clears throat> So the commission can go inside Facebook and can identify any data set, thing, in other words, a thing that we as academics recognize as a data set, and we can say, this would be useful for research. We can pull it out if it is legal, if it is appropriate, if it is privacy protecting, and we can talk about all of those things. We can pull it out, we can have an RFP, a request for proposals from these outside academics, and then we can give them data access. Um, if Facebook doesn't let the commission pull out a particular data set that would be legal, um, but may, let's say might make them look bad, then, then Facebook has reneged on its bargain and the commission retains the right and has the obligation to report to the public that Facebook reneged on its, on its deal. So that's how it is incentive compatible for academics and incentive compatible for Facebook. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, However, just like when you apply for grants for most things, like even for data from the United States government, if you apply for a particular subject, you can only study that particular subject. If you want to study something else, then you have to ask again, and the commission, commission make, makes that decision. So anyway, that's the structure that we came up with. We're still working on it. It's going much slower than expected, okay? Um, figuring out ways of, of, um, create, of, of making privacy protected data access available is actually, is actually really difficult. But it doesn't matter how long it takes. This is our job in the social sciences. We absolutely have to solve these problems. We're building a first of its kind privacy preserving computer infrastructure to give researchers access in a way that is mathematically impossible to uh, violate anybody's individual privacy. There's some new technology in, uh, in computer science called differential privacy, in fact, that would help us do that. Um, only the computer scientists in, in, uh, that study differential privacy, uh, they can mathematically ensure that no one will have their privacy violated. They can ensure that social scientists can make appropriate statistical inferences. So we're, that's something that we know how to do. So we're trying to mix these together and have both privacy and utility without balancing to, to the extent possible. Um, which we're changing from a model of individual responsibility to one of collective responsibility. Individual responsibility from that researcher at Cambridge Analytica that violated you know, his individual responsibility to collective responsibility. So instead of data sharing where I just give you data and you promise to keep it safe, instead I give you data access. So it's a changing from a regime of data sharing to data, to, to data access. You, you, you will have access if you apply for data through this system and you can today and I encourage you to do it. Um, you'll have data access on a system that is logged and audited and it, it is privacy protected, so you cannot go and look up you know, uh, Madonna's friends or, or your ex-wife's, uh, ex-spouse's uh, uh, partners or anything like that. Um, uh, but you will be able to learn some things about society, which is, which is really valuable. So we have a few data sets that, that we have made available already. One is um, 
uh, not to everybody in the world, but to people who've applied, of course. Uh, all URLs shared publicly on Facebook more than 100 times in a, in, in a public way, and lots of characteristics about the URLs, like whether the URL, you know, like how often it was shared, um, uh, what kinds of people have shared it, uh, and then what, what the URL is, right? Is it news? If it's news, was it was it characterized as fake news by these, by these uh, truth, truth checkers in, in the media? Um, uh, and quite a lot of information uh, which we're rolling out stage by stage about uh, uh, you know, as we build the, this privacy infrastructure about types of users and uh, where they're from in the world and the ideology uh, of, the, of the people sharing it and the ideology of their friends. And we haven't, we haven't released all of this yet, but we're working on it. Um, Second is a, a library of political ads, which is basically all the ads on, on Facebook um, and some targeting information. Uh, we're going to have to have that in order to answer some of the questions that I raised at the beginning. Um, CrowdTangle, which is data on media stories and usage and viewers. Uh, and we're working, on, we're working on lots of other things, including all the major surveys that are done by, by academics. We're, we're working with them to add a question at the end to say, hey, you know, dear respondent, you just shared all this information with us, all this private information that we promised to keep. May we also have access to your Facebook data to merge in with the survey data? So we have this behavioral data on Facebook merged in with your survey data. That, I think, could really change the way we learn about, um, about individuals and increase the knowledge that we have by quite a lot and potentially create a lot of, a lot of public good. Um, so anyway, I said this was harder than expected, taking longer than expected, but I think it's, it's really exciting. I think it is the future of the social sciences. I think it is also the future of industry um, and uh, figuring out ways of working together, not only this one, but lots of others is, is what I think we all ought to be doing, so. Thank you very much, Gary King. Um, let me just start out with a kind of a practical question. Um, so what? I mean, I, I get your passion about this because I frankly share it. I spend most of my time doing research and the most important element of doing research is having data. So I get that, you know, in the club of academics, makes a lot of sense. But why should folks here who are not academics care about what you're talking about? Well, what do, you, what do you all care about? What do you want to know? What do you want to know that academics could help with? I think we, could, I think we, can, we can solve some of those problems. So think of the, just the public health issues, right? It turns out that, that there's quite a lot of public health information that is conveyed on a platform like Facebook. We're not making that data. We, don't, we can't analyze that data yet, but I think we should find a way to, way to analyze it. So for 350 years, academics have been studying mortality. I sort of doubt that there's anybody here that wouldn't like to reduce that particular problem, right? <laughs> Raise your hand and someone will come and speak, speak to you for quite a, quite a while. <laughs> um, so it turns out on a platform like Facebook, mortality is actually observable, right? As are certain major illnesses. It, not only is it observable, but the data that demographers have collected for 350 years in order to look for the patterns that might lead to more early mortality 
um, is available in much more informative ways. Well, shouldn't we be using that to try to deal with that problem? So give me a very concrete example of how having access to this data would give you insight or give a researcher insight into mortality and illness. Well, uh, if, I mean, maybe, maybe some of you have had experiences on Facebook where someone dies, you actually talk about it, um, right? So that means there's information about it. And of course, that person's feed stops, right? So using appropriate techniques, we would be able to have some sense of who dies, basically, right? So knowing that for two billion, for almost two billion people, could be tremendously valuable. Maybe there's certain things that we're doing, that certain behaviors that we have, foods that we eat, uh, things that we do, interactions that we have, that actually have health consequences, and we don't know about it yet. Um, the original uh, uh, studies in public health were, well, you know what? When you drink from the public water supply, it turns out somebody discovered, actually it turns out people would die, right? Uh, you know, you get, you get disease really early and people would die. Like just, just that empirical discovery turned out to be really valuable for all of us. There's probably lots of other things. So just having, I mean, I'm giving it a public health example, and of course, this project is for the effects of social media on elections and democracy, but it just seems hard to argue against uh, better health for everybody. But I mean, clearly, the scope of what you're talking about, I mean, you didn't set this up only to look at social media. That's, that's kind of, I don't know, low-hanging fruit or some kind of hanging fruit that you're going after first. The intention, as well, I, I understand it, I, is to go broader, right? Yeah, actually, um, so, it wasn't that we started with the hardest example, the hardest case, because we're, we just like to do hard things. It was, we, there was a crisis. Remember, I had been trying to convince Facebook and, and, and lots of other companies, which I've been more or less successful with, depending on making available to my students and to myself and to the academic community. And for Facebook, there was a crisis, and we used the crisis to produce some results. And so the crisis was about this incredibly incendiary issue. Um, and so we made a lot of progress in part because of the but, crisis. But the, your intention is to broaden it out from yes, that. Yes, that's right. Okay, that's so right. let me give you a couple other concrete examples and just see if this would be the kind of thing that, that this data could help uh, researchers work on. Um, folks who are logging into Facebook and talking about mental illness and the drugs they're taking. Folks logging in and talking about posting on eating disorders, or um, a young person talking about being bullied, or you know, you just go down the list. Sure. The idea of what you're doing, I think, and help me with this, is that by looking at the comments of that post and then the reaction of others, you'd be able to put together a pretty compelling set of inferences about causes um, and effects and possible interventions that, that seem to matter. Now, think of the examples that Larry just gave, okay? So there's two things going on here, right? Yes, we could clearly help that person. And secondly, are we gonna be violating this person's privacy and the privacy of this person's friends? Um, uh, is it, it and, and by the way, what does help mean, right? <laughs> you know, right? And who's gonna decide what help is? So there's a lot of incredibly important societal issues, right? So even just using someone, someone else's data to be able to figure out what patterns would be useful to intervene with this person, that's, that also poses many, many uh, important questions. I don't, I don't have the answers to those questions. I don't know the answers to those questions. But I think not studying this 
these kinds of things merely because we don't know the answers to, answers to the questions or because they're hard is a big mistake. So I think, I think yes, there's enormous potential there if we can agree on some, some appropriate guide, guide rails. So we're in an age where clearly uh, information has exploded, um, social media, it's, you know, uh, billions of hits um, or posts a day, you, um, and all these different tablets and, and other points at which we're sharing our data. On the other hand, it's striking that when we look at government and we look at uh, the private sector and we look at individual uh, behaviors, it doesn't appear that data is necessarily the key driver. Uh, for instance, I'm thinking of just in the last week, we had an incident with the president talking about a hurricane uh, that was contrary to what the weather service was predicting. We've got folks on Wall Street who are making bets on securities that, we, that, that they know based on the data that any one of us could go look at is probably false and will be increasing the risk of some kind of uh, turbulence mm -hmm. in the marketplace. We know certain things about diet and, other, and risky behavior and yet people continue to do it. So my, my question to you is, so what? I mean, you're doing, you're backbreaking work and getting the data. Is it, is it really kind of academic narcissism? <laughs> well, give it to me anyway, I enjoy it. <laughs> um, the stockbrokers, uh, that's self-correcting, right? If they're, if they're following advice that is not gonna help them make money, that's okay. The, uh, the first example you gave, the political example, that may or may not be corrected at the next election, it depends in part on the people of Minnesota, we'll see. Um, uh, some of the others, uh, you know, we in the academic community think that paying attention to the facts uh, is probably a useful thing. Um, it certainly would help us in uh, goals that I think we all have. Um, and so, uh, so learning more about people is, just seems sort of obvious, right? Like, um, in the, you know, the, 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 we call the, the sciences the hard sciences, but of course the really hard sciences are the social sciences because we have much less information about people. And, and also the really annoying thing is every one of you is not the same, right? When a, when a physicist studies a hydrogen atom, they make the assumption that every hydrogen atom in the universe is exactly the same as every other one. Holy cow! <laughs> you know? And they all believe it, and you know what? It does appear to be the case, <laughs> right? But you can't make that assumption about humans, right? So that just means that if you're studying hydrogen atoms, you really only need one or a few to study. If you're studying humans, you need much more data than that. And and actually, we're the humans. We get to decide whether you study the hydrogen atoms or the humans. So what problems would you like, to be, would, would you like solved? Okay. I, I would like um, all the problems that they're working on in the sciences. I really want to know, is there life on other planets? I, 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 wanna, I really want to know all the kinds of things that they're doing, right? I want driverless cars, right, like tomorrow, on my way home. Um, uh, like, all those would be great, but I would also like to solve the problems of, of economic collapses that seem to happen every once in a while, and teenage pregnancy, and, and, and unemployment, and, uh, and what happens to work when, 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 when we've automated everything, and, 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 and democracy, and freedom, and, and uh, I mean, on and on and on and on, pretty much all the problems that humans tend to really focus on are social science problems. So, you know, we can help you learn some of those things. We can help ourselves learn some of those things if we have access to information about 
what we're studying, which is the humans. Right. I really love your optimism. Um, because I, I look at data, you know, let's say it's on, you know, kind of getting an insight into economic depressions. Um, or the case I gave on um, uh, financial firms, uh, you know, once again, securitizing debt in a way which it's almost certainly not going to end well. Um, and you say it's self-correcting. Yeah, but remember last time in 2008, there were millions of people who lost their jobs. Sure. There are lots of folks who are still struggling to get back. So, you know, how data prevents or at least mitigates or alerts us um, to the point that we're able to avoid or reduce um, these unwanted effects worries me. Let me give you a concrete example. In the area of healthcare for the last half century, the vision has been let's collect outstanding data about the usage of different types of therapeutic and diagnostic um, uh, procedures. Let's put that in the hands of consumers and let's let those consumers be discerning shoppers, kind of like when we go buy a car. You get consumer report and you walk around the lot. Well, it's not happening in healthcare. And one of the reasons is uh, the consumers didn't really know how to process that information or they're in a crisis situation, you've had a heart attack, it's not really the time to go to Gary King's um, you know, impressive body of data and figure out uh, you know, how to proceed. Um, and then the other part, which I think is maybe the most fundamental obstacle, is that the organizations whose profits and, um, and, and business operations would be interrupted because your information is disruptive of those practices mm -hmm. and that money flow will for sure rise up. And that's what we've seen in healthcare. The providers again and again, when there's data out there, that will tell you this is the better hospital, you get higher care at a lower cost, they intervene and they disrupt or try to discredit that information. So I, count me as um, you know, more cautionary about the power of the data outside of our world. Out, mm -hmm. In our world, what you're doing is going to be a bonanza, and, and anyone thinking of going to grad school in political science or social sciences, two thumbs up. Gary King is going to make your life a lot easier. <laughs> um, so, so we are a weird subsection of, of humanity. I, I'm, totally, I'm totally with it. We have this thing that, like, truth is like a useful thing. Like, um, facts are really useful. This is really weird, because humans have not, I think, have not been designed to seek truth. Humans have been designed, I think, to argue, to get people on our side. And sometimes the facts are useful for that, and sometimes not, right? I think, I think the truth is sort of one of many considerations in politics, don't you think? <laughs> you know? um, and it really is, right? Like, well, who said that, that, that what we pay attention to has to be the thing? Um, in politics, you can make a case for whatever you want, right? Now, that's that's one reason why maybe they should leave us alone, because they can still make any case they want. So I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic. Um, but, but gosh, data is useful, okay? So how many people have, have, have had their blood pressure taken, right? Almost everybody, okay? When they first came up with a measure of blood pressure, do you know what they thought it meant? Because they didn't have data? They thought it meant that the higher the blood pressure, the stronger your heart and the better it was for you. Right? That's what they thought. And they would measure blood pressure and they'd say, your blood pressure is not high enough. And they'd try to figure out how to make it higher. That's what they thought. Okay? Now, are you happy that they, <laughs> like, blood pressure actually is linearly related to bad things. Okay? I mean, in, until it gets really low. <laughs> okay? So, like, we discovered that with data. Like, so, uh, I'm sure you're on the same page. <laughs>
Um, I want to invite up a colleague of mine in the law school, Bill McGovern, who's specialized in data privacy, intellectual property, communications, technology, and free speech. Please give him a warm welcome to Bill McGovern. Bill, if you could pull your microphone closer to you, that'd be great. So I'm going to just invite you, uh, you've been sitting here listening to this conversation. What are the questions and issues that we're not talking about that you want to put on the table? Well, we're talking a little bit about privacy, but I think it's probably smart to dig in a little bit further. That is one of the areas that certainly Social Science One acknowledges as one of the, the big challenges you face. You said legal, uh, uh, appropriate, and privacy protective. Um, and one of the things that stands out to me when I hear privacy talk in this space is something you see a lot in privacy discussions. What's the harm of, of privacy? When we say privacy, what do we actually mean? And the, the sometimes technical term for it is you know, consequential versus inherent. But it's the difference between if somebody finds out this information about me, is something bad going to happen to me? You know, is my stalker going to find me? Is identity theft going to happen? Am I going to be subject to stigma or reputational damage? That's an important part of privacy. But a lot of people, when they talk about privacy, also talk about it as being a, uh, the feeling that you are in control of information about yourselves. And honestly, a lot of the time when people say worry about their privacy with regard to Facebook, it's this second one that really bugs them. It, you know, your information might be secret, but you still feel like it's going into a black box and being uh, used in ways that you don't understand and might not approve of. Right? And so when you talk about it being used for social science research, it makes me think of some of the consent requirements in medical ethics. Right? Your, our colleagues in the School of Medicine have to get a lot of permission from people to use their information for research. Social science one isn't really set up that way. It's set up to take information that you're sort of uh, approaching as if it's lying there in the street and it's available to use and you're picking up. But people converted to Facebook uh, one of the things that they often hate about Facebook is that Facebook goes and uses it for a bunch of other stuff. Even if you, what you're doing is socially beneficial, aren't you adding another thing that people haven't given you permission to do? And how do you think about that ethically? So, uh, so for some things, for uh, when it really is a use of the data that was not anticipated originally, we opt people in and we, we actually have them express their consent and you don't have to opt in if you don't want to opt in and if you don't, if you don't actively opt in, then we can't use your data. Um, for other things, which the lawyers, now by the way, there's, you wouldn't believe how many lawyers there are in the world um, <laughs> or how many that we have to interact with. Um, but the lawyers You mean say, how many you get to interact with? Yes, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> what I meant. <laughs> they say that, um, that in the terms of use of Facebook, the other things that we're doing are included. Now, you, you can't include me in, the, in, that, in, that, in that discussion. And by the way, Larry, don't take, don't take medical advice from a political scientist. <laughs> um, uh, so, that, so I think that legally, I mean, the lawyers make the decisions, not us, and that's, that's how, how it's covered. However, what we're doing is, is using data in a way so that if, you, if your data were not included, the data from your Facebook account were not included in our analysis, then we would come to the, exactly the same conclusions as if your data were included, okay? That, that's the standard. It's, that's called differential privacy. Facebook uses uh, 
our data for a lot of different things, some of which we might like and some of which we might don't, might not like. You're certainly right that the terms of service let Facebook do pretty much, it's a really long document that boils down to whatever we want. It's kind of what their terms of service say. Um, so that's why I said ethics, not law, in the question I was asking you, because I think it's clearly legal, um, but I think both as to some other things Facebook does, and maybe as to what you're doing, some people are wondering whether it's right, mm -hmm. even if it's legal. Those are great questions. Um, <clears throat> what's legal is a difficult enough question. I mean, that's an incredibly difficult question. And Facebook, of course, is all over the world. And so there's regulatory bodies all over the world mm -hmm. that get to rule on this particular question. Mm -hmm. And we, we watch. We talk to the regulators also, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. Um, but just watching it is incredibly fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like the law is, as you, oh, sorry. It's not like the law, as, as you well know, is ever very, very clear. Um, and as the public gets, has become more upset about privacy violations, the regulators, I think, are, uh, take different views. And then, of course, there's, as, as you're asking me now, well, how about ethics separate from law? I don't even know if I could define the difference between the two. But yes, we have to decide what to do. Yeah. And our, our rule is, of course, it has to be legal, otherwise we don't even get to talk to, to, to people. Facebook has to make those decisions, otherwise they're not gonna let us, let us get to it. Um, we have opinions about that. They're very conservative about it, mm -hmm. and you know, perhaps they should be. Um, uh, uh, for us, um, I think the standard of differential privacy seems fairly clear. So if you, let me just say it again, right? So we, we're gonna do an analysis with a big set of data, and let's say you get to decide whether your data is in my, not my, my data set or not, and if, you're, if you choose to put your data in there or not, or whether it's in there or not, I'm gonna to come to exactly the same conclusions, okay? Mm -hmm. So does that seem okay to you? I can make an argument against that, but it seems like that's a reasonable standard. Gary King, let me uh, jump in and ask you, um, do the um, researchers who have accessed the data through Social Science One, which is the organization you've been part of setting up, um, do they uh, have to abide by the terms of service that Facebook has set up? Well, supposedly, anyway, everybody has everybody that is out there in the world has to abide by the terms of service. I mean, that's, I guess, a legal issue also, but, um, but yes, they have to abide by much more than the terms of service. We, we give them a special data use agreement that they, they have to abide by. And the European Union has set up a series of regulations or a massive regulation um, precisely to carve out protections for, for citizens. Um, and one of those areas of protection is that when you delete your data, let's say you post something on Facebook, it's gone. Now, is that the, the norm at Facebook and is it the practice at Social Science One? So, so, this, uh, so yes, if you delete, I mean, first of all, we're not verifying everybody, everything Facebook does, but to the best of my knowledge, if you delete your account, um, and, it is actually, and you actually choose deletion rather than archiving and things like that, then Facebook deletes it and deletes all records of it. Um, that creates problems for us, right? Because that means our data sets rust over time. Uh, and, and if different types of people uh, delete their accounts, then it may create rusting in a particular direction that may bias our analyses. So we, we pay very close attention to this, this kind of thing. Um, so yeah. Bill McGovern? And, and uh, aren't Russian trolls uh, trying to influence elections more likely to be deleters than your average 
that's American an excellent user? That's an excellent question. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and, it yeah. might, and, and, it, and the answer isn't obvious, actually. Right. You might think they want to cover up, their, cover up their tracks, or maybe they actually want everybody to know what they're doing, or, or maybe they go and do it, and then they just leave, let, let it be abandoned so that nobody's watching them. You really don't know, and we have to figure those things out. That's, what, that's what, why we need you all to participate and be good but, researchers. But Gary King, let me take that question the other way. What if you have a researcher who's applied to Social Science One, uh, who is getting funding from a government agency involved in working with one of our intelligence um, uh, uh, um, operations in the U.S.? Can they use uh, the data to conduct research that's funded by the government that could be used for, let's say, government misinformation campaigns? Well, we're not following the researchers around, so I can't really verify everything that's being used, but what happens if you apply is you have to be a legitimate researcher at a, at a legitimate, insti legitimate institution of higher learning like the University of Minnesota. Um, uh, you have to have PI privileges, so you're, you're, you, that means you're uh, a representative of the institution, as, well, as all regular faculty are. Um, uh, you have to take your proposal, send it through your, your institutional review board. If you're in countries without an institutional review board, then, then we will help pay, pay you to go through an institutional review board that is a for-profit one. Uh, you, can, you can pay somebody to do that. Um, then then your, your proposal is going to go through a specific process. There's going to be peer review, ethical peer review, um, merit-based merit peer review. So that's three reviews already. Then it goes to the commission. That's the fourth review. Then you get to do your analysis. Then we give you access. You can only study the things that you promise to study. If you study something else, I personally tell every one of the researchers, if you do something that that you didn't, that we didn't agree that you would do on this platform. First of all, we're going to know. Second of all, we're going to do our best to cancel your credit cards and end your career. <laughs> that's partly a joke, but that's, but I'm, I'm also being serious. Like, like we're going to know what it is you do because it's, it's all completely audited. Um, and so th th that's why we have a collective responsibility rather than an individual responsibility. That's the regime that we're changing. Gary King, that sounds very compelling. On the other hand, those of us in the university world know full well that the Defense Department and intelligence agencies provide very substantial funding for um, colleagues doing a variety of, of different kinds of research. And so there is a practice, and it's very common for our institutional review boards to approve that research. Mm -hmm. And what I'm understanding you to say is that on addition to, in addition to that, internal review process that Social Science One will be looking and scrutinizing research projects with an ethical perspective in terms of whether that research is geared to undermining democracy in the case of misinformation campaigns. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. There's an ethical review, there's an ethical review as well. But I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that Ethics is not something that there is agreement on. I mean, mm -hmm. there's never been 100% agreement on any normative principle, I think, in history. Um, and so there's not going to be here. But what we try to do is get an ethical review on every proposal so at least the issues are surfaced. So at least we're all, we're all considering it. The other thing is that the results of the research from these researchers, they all commit to make public. And we wouldn't let them analyze something unless it could be public. And so, yes, it might be used for bad purposes. It might be used for good purposes. But we'll all have the access to it. Bill McGovern, can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. 
Are you worried about what Social Science One is proposing? Uh, in some ways, I am. Why? Uh, so I have two kind of sets of worries, and I, and I should preface it by saying that I think that it, these are not these are things that hopefully, with being conscientious, we can work our way through. Uh, and I think the social science one is trying to do that. Um, but I do have two sets of worries. One is around this question of people's ability to control. And you did talk about differential privacy and, and removing some people from the data set. But it remains the case that a lot of what social scientists are interested in using is the kind of the trail we leave uh, and that it's the same kind of information that's used for targeted advertising and that's used for credit scoring. And we've come to an equilibrium for now where we're accepting all of those uses, but I think that's an unstable equilibrium and one that people are looking to revisit. Mm -hmm. And uh, likewise, with research, even research for good purposes like social science or public health, I think you can have people saying, um, I was talking to Facebook or I was using the web for this reason, not for those reasons. And I'm not sure Social Science One is ready for that kind of a change in attitudes that may be right around the corner. Gary King, do you want to respond? No, I think that I think um, I think you're right that that um, or I agree with you that uh, attitudes can change about how your, our data can be used. I think they've changed in the last year. I think they've mm -hmm. changed spectacularly over the last ten years. I think whatever agreement we come up with, if we all got together for the next year or ten years and came up with an agreement, that would last probably the that entire day um, and not much longer. Um, and I, and I, don't, I don't foresee a time when we will ever come to a, a complete agreement about these things. And so, so we have to understand that. We have to understand that this is an ongoing process and, and forums like this are essential to the process. It's not like there's a decision and we do that. So. Bill McGovern, let me ask you this. We are in a time of information and, and, and uh, data uh, exploding. We're also at a time when for good reason, many citizens are very worried about the misuse of that data and privacy. And here you've got Gary King coming along for what I take to be a, a well-meaning, somewhat geeky project. <laughs> um, it, how difficult is it for the Gary King project on social science, one, to be talked about in an environment of fear and um, distrust I, I think it's a, it definitely is a problem, and uh, the Cambridge Analytica uh, incident that, that Gary referred to earlier definitely makes it more difficult because, of course, that was a, an academic exploration that got turned into something broader by someone who was breaking the rules that they were supposed to be following, but nonetheless, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, ability to enforce or maintain those rules in the situation that was there. So, you know, you listed a whole bunch of safeguards, but uh, for someone who didn't feel like obeying them, they would all go away pretty fast. You don't have a police force to enforce those rules that you just talked about, those agreements. So I do think that the trust problem, uh, Facebook has a big trust problem. The specific incident that you referred to increased trust problems and it involved academic research. And so you definitely have to cut through a lot of worry. Absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, that, that did not make it any easier for us. The, uh, uh, the, the regime, however, was completely different, right? The, as you, you pointed out that 
that the, the protections that Facebook had in place at the time were not uh, particularly strong, and it made it possible for the researcher, that researcher to violate his personal responsibility and legal responsibility. Um, I mean, he shouldn't have done it. It was illegal for him to do it. But nevertheless, um, you know, perhaps it shouldn't have been possible. Um, in our case, actually, it is impossible to do what, what he did. It is because of the access restrictions. Yes, it is impossible, impossible to right. download the, the right. data set and hand it over to a private company. That yeah. can't happen anymore. Um, uh, and, and there's many, many other protections in place. I mean, this is the most privacy-protecting system that I think has ever mm -hmm. been constructed. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, who knows what can happen, but right. um, we're, we're, we, we've learned from the last war anyway, and we're trying to anticipate some of the future ones. So just so. a little bracket here. Uh, at, uh, Cambridge Analytica, the scandal, um, what happened was there was a researcher who got access to the data to do right. one thing, Instead, he turned around and gave the data to the folks who were advocating for Brexit, who were working for the Trump administration or the Trump campaign. Um, Ted Cruz and his campaign benefited from it. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, and this exploded um, you know, maybe a year and a half ago, and um, uh, Facebook is spending a lot of time in Congress trying to explain mm -hmm. what's going on. But, by the way, we don't know, what, we don't know whether anybody benefited from it, because Cambridge Analytica were using methods that none of us actually think make any sense. But um, nevertheless... They made uh, some it, money from it, though. They <laughs> made money from it, and they used the data inappropriately, yeah. which is really the point. Yeah. So. So I, the only other thing I'll say about when you ask me sort of what are my worries yeah. there, um, uh, so here, I'll do a thought experiment, because I'm a law professor, and law professors like our hypotheticals, right? Um, suppose the phone company recorded every telephone call, or um, Alexa and the other digital assistants recorded everything we were saying, you know, for their own business purposes, to, you know, the Alexa does do some randomized recording co made confidential in order to uh, make their voice activation better. Um, that's beautiful data. It could probably do great things to help uh, machine learning around natural language processing and speech uh, activation and all kinds of other benefits. Um, if Social Science One had the opportunity to use uh, tapes of all our phone calls in the same way, would you, would you feel the same way as what you've talked about in terms of social media information? So Can I don't want to argue the ethical points because like we don't really disagree with each other no, on, on well. these things. But what I want to do is think about uh, us all together, about mechanisms we can use to, to, um, make, to protect individual privacy and also use this information for all of us. So are there mechanisms that we can, that we can agree on? Because we're not going to agree on all the ethics and all the appropriate uses of these data. But can we come up with, with structural ways of protecting individuals and maybe groups and things like that such that we would be more OK with it? Right? So are there conditions? Right? Because there are things that would benefit society in huge ways. I mean, let's take, I mean, everybody right now wants driverless cars. Okay, so there's a little chip that's in quite a lot of your cars that's collecting your driving information that's going to insurance companies. So maybe we could also use that by the, uh, maybe the people creating driverless cars could also use that. We would sort of like them to use that. Yeah. But we don't really want the insurance companies to raise our rates. So 
are, are there conditions, are there privacy-protected conditions where somebody's watching, it's really safe, we would trust the procedure, we get some vote on whether it's okay? I don't know exactly, but could, we, could, a, could my law professor friend come up with a way of, of constructing this so that we would be willing to do it? Gary King, let me ask you about um, these privacy protections, which earnest effort, um, and from what I know, I think your effort has been more earnest than, than most. Um, and a big part of uh, the privacy efforts um, are focused on using algorithms uh, to create um, a, a data set in which individual attributes are, are not readily understood and even sophisticated re-identification processes can't crack it. But what about when you've got vulnerable minority groups? Could be mm -hmm. ethnic or racial uh, group, could be a group that's been, you know, a group of battered women who've, or, or, or refugees who've mm -hmm. been uh, brutally assaulted. They're small in number relative to a large population. Mm -hmm. Are there protections for, uh, you know, these kind of more small, targeted, vulnerable groups? So, yes, we can put protections like that in place. Uh, <clears throat> do we have protections in place for every single possible division of the public? No, because then we wouldn't actually learn anything, right? So the, the, the whole idea here is that, um, is that there's some parts of the data that we absolutely want to protect, and there's some that we want to learn from uh, that would help everybody. And we have to decide where that line is. And just like the ethics dis discussion I was having over here, the, 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 I mean, this is a different ethics discussion. It's what, what questions are okay to pursue um, I think the examples you gave are not okay to pursue, right? So that we would probably control on the questions coming in, but we can, we know how to protect them with the, with the technology, with this differential this, privacy. But. This commission that you're setting up, there are several people in the audience who are wondering who else is going to be on the commission other than um, our esteemed brilliant colleagues, um, and particular citizens, uh, perhaps advocates for vulnerable populations. Would they be on the, on the commission to make sure and to be kind of a watchdog that Social Science One and Facebook were respecting these vulnerable groups? So um, all the decisions are not Social Science One. It is Facebook's data. They actually get to make the final decisions about you know, all of these things. Um, and so Facebook itself is, uh, makes some of these decisions themselves. They have actually set up some kind of organization like you're describing. Um, which includes representatives from different communities and things like that. That's a process, a procedure. I don't know whether that solves the problem, but mm -hmm. it uh, at least addresses it. Um, at Social Science One, we're intending to be academics helping academic researchers. So we're, we're not tackling all the problems of privacy of, of individuals. So. Got a bunch of questions here from the audience. I've been filtering some in. Um, do you expect your study on elections and social media to be done and published prior to November 2020. <laughs> There's a one word answer. <laughs> if, if, we, if you had asked me that a year ago, I would have said yes, um, and now I'm gonna say no. Uh, it's, uh, the other thing is it's not a study. It's, uh, we have 80 researchers, more than 80 researchers that have been granted access to the data. It may be that some of them will, some of their research will actually be published um, before then, um, but I'd guess that most of it actually it's gonna take longer. So. How confident are you that the data that you're receiving from Facebook is clean and reliable. 
Well, remember, we're not actually receiving the data, we're receiving data access, so it's just an adjustment of the question. Um, uh, how confident are we that the data is clean and reliable and not pre-cooked by Facebook? Okay, so that's what we spend our time doing. So that I'm pretty sure of, okay? It would be a Herculean effort to try to con con uh, uh, put one over on, on the commission. We have put in enormous numbers of checks. Every, you know, something's always possible, but um, that's the thing that I think we, ha we stand up for the academic community and the public to make sure that that doesn't happen. What sort of data are you looking at uh, in terms of what Facebook has given you access to to uh, look into uh, the impact of social media on elections? So we have these, uh, so far we have data sets on what URLs are clicked on in public ways, um, the, the, uh, the ad library, which types of ads that candidates are putting up, um, what media outlets are doing, but there's quite a lot more information. And so when we get there, I think we will learn a lot more. Bill McGovern. So uh, I wonder about the, um, the, Downstream, you know, this is a, we've talked very much about Facebook because Facebook is the company that that uh, was most interested in cooperating with you in the first instance. Um, your vision, ten years, twenty years in the future, is there a social science one in working individually with every company? Is there some kind of clearinghouse for all of the data hoarding companies in the country to mm -hmm. to be filtered through? Um, even taking it further, are you creating in some ways a, a repetition of another kind of powerful choke point for a very big data decision that has a lot of power that nobody elected? How do you think about that as you get optimistically past this one company arrangement? Yeah, so I don't much care about this organization that we set up, Social Science One, <laughs> except for what it's doing. And we're not trying to make it, make it survive, right? That's not, that's not like the particular goal. Um, uh, I've cooperated and uh, arranged uh, uh, um, uh, studies with lots of other companies with different mechanisms. And so I think it's our job to come up with an incentive-compatible mechanism for whatever company it is. So I did a study of the media. Right, let me just tell you about this. So, so in the media, everybody wants to know what the effect of the media is. We all think the media has a really big effect because it affects everybody else. But we don't think it affects us, right? <laughs> right, right. How, many people how many people changed their minds between Clinton and Trump during the 2016 election and then back? Right? But how many people think that, that everybody else was influenced by, by, by various other things that have, you know what I mean? So you really want to know what's the effect of the media, right? And the only way we're really going to know is to, is to randomize, randomize what's published and when. But how are, you going to random, how are you going to tell the New York Times what to publish and when, right? By flipping, by, we're going to randomly assign, assign news articles. Well, so what we actually did was I negotiated with 48 media outlets, my, my two graduate students and I, and we, we convinced them under incentive-compatible ways that was okay with them, that fit journalistic ethics, such that we actually, at the end of the day, were able to randomly assign newspaper articles to outlets and, and when they were going to publish it, so that we could really figure out what the effect of the media was. And it was actually quite big. But we would never have been able to do the study. The media outlets would never have been able to learn what the effect is of what they were doing. Um, and the public wouldn't have been able to know those things. So that was a completely different, di different setup. Uh, Gary King, we have a couple other questions here from our friends who've joined us. Um, there are a lot of individuals who are not on Facebook. Will that affect the results you get? 
Depends on how you describe the study. So we have a, we, uh, the, the studies using Facebook data are excellent, rep, are, are perfectly representative of people that use Facebook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how you ask it. But you're right, right, different people don't use Facebook. So that's, those are a very important selection bias questions, we would call that, uh, for researchers. And they have to be able to deal with those questions. And is that selection bias um, uh, uh, underrepresenting uh, lower income groups, people of color? I think it depends upon which part of the world you're in and also which time period. Because it's in Facebook's economic interests to actually go after everybody. They really are trying to go after everybody. But, but if your study is of the US elections. No, no, it's true. But even at any one point in time, the, I can answer your question. I mean, your, your question would be answerable. Um, but at another point in time, Facebook's trying to, mm -hmm. to fix that. Right, so whether they f do fix it, uh, you know, we have to see. But just in terms of your study of the 2016 election, um, I take it your point, you, you acknowledge that there's underrepresentation of lower income people and people of color. Um, so, I mean, if you don't have access to the internet, then you're unlikely to be yeah. using Facebook. Yeah. However, um, cell phones, you don't understand how many people have yeah. cell phones. It's actually more likely uh, young people and rural people being underrepresented on Facebook as much as anything. There's something, wait, wait, but let me just say one more word about this. There's something like 200 million more cell phones in the world than there are toothbrushes. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is a spectacularly <laughs> successful technology. Um, so, Bill? Yeah, I, I wonder about the, um, uh, the, the, so, the study at the Facebook that you're talking about now are studies of Facebook, right? They're Facebook's influence on the election or social media and these particular vectors that some actors may or may not have used. Can you say a little bit more, uh, especially for the people in the room who are not, don't know, have social science PhDs, about the ways in which you do potentially correct for selection bias if you're going to try and use a closed set of data to make generalizations about a wider population? So <clears throat> what we do in academia is, I is inference. What's inference? Inference is using facts you have to learn about facts you don't have. We get the facts we have wherever we can get them, right? It's opportunistic. We try to create them in useful ways, but they're never exactly the facts you don't have, right? They're never exactly those, right? Um, before Facebook, so Facebook clearly, it's a problem. Some people don't have Facebook. Some people use it every day. Other people don't use it, right? And we have to figure out how to adjust for those things. Well, let's put Facebook aside. <clears throat> the, the, the methodology that was most used in the social sciences to learn about people was survey research. In fact, in the last mm -hmm. century, that's probably by far and away the most um, important methodology. So we all know what public opinion is, right? It's like the answers to the survey questions. Actually, 100 years ago, the definition of public opinion was not answers to survey questions because there were no survey questions. In fact, it was not even uh, uh, the opinions of a representative sample of people or, or opinions of all people. In fact, the definition of public opinion 100 years ago was activated public opinion. It was the opinion of people who chose to express their opinions. Right? 100 years ago, we would measure, we, <laughs> one, one would measure this by newspaper editorials and what people were saying in the public square and uh, things people said at the water cooler in the, or in the hallway conversations or at dinner conversations. That's what public opinion was. If you were in your house and had an opinion and wasn't express, weren't expressing it, it didn't count and nobody cared. Nobody thought it should count. And then, and then, the, then survey research was invented, and, and we changed the definition of the thing we were studying. 
So then comes, then comes social media. So what is social media? Social media is actually the definition of public opinion from 100 years ago, right? It's, it's people who choose to express themselves. Which is the correct definition of public opinion? There's no answer to that question, okay? Um, they're different questions and we have to pay attention to them. If you're interested in one question, and there's good reason to be interested in either one, and you have data from the other, then you have to figure out how to get from one to the other, and that you, you can see the problems with that. You can't just use it naively. You have to figure out how to make adjustments. Uh, Gary King, um, there are companies that are setting up centers of excellence at universities, and some of these uh, centers are getting access to their data. Um, what do you think of the, the, that operation? Do you say it's good, maybe uh, compatible with what you're doing, or something we should be skeptical of is not rigorous enough or expansive enough? I mean, I think we have to just check to make sure that the company doesn't have prior publication approval. Most universities would not allow that, but we have to really make sure. I mean, I think it's okay that they get a heads up about what's about to be published. Maybe it's okay that they get, that if something's gonna be patented, they get right of first refusal. There's a lot of ways of making it incentive compatible for them. Um, but we have to have some academic integrity left at the, end of, at the end of the process. I do think, however, that different companies and different business models and different forms of data demand different structures. That's why we're not gonna set up social science one for every, for every company in America, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but, but we have to have these structures. So if the structure is you set up a center for, center for excellence within the university and that works for academics and they have sufficient freedom and it works for the company, then that's terrific. I want to welcome my colleague, Kate Semino, who wants to say a final word. Hi there. Well, thank you for the great discussion today, and thanks for being here. And thank you all for joining us. My name is Kate Semino, and I work here at our Center for the Study of Politics and Governance here at the Humphrey School. I know we have some familiar faces in the audience, as well as some new folks who might be joining one of our programs for the first time. And as you look ahead at the upcoming programs on our uh, fall lineup, I know, and I hope you find that our work reflects um, a sense of bipartisan, um, approach to issues, that we like to take a deep look, um, not just go through talking points, but really uh, dig deeper into issues that really matter to all of us. Um, there are some people I want to thank who support our uh, programming. We have some corporate and private foundation sponsors, as well as individuals, and you can join that group as well. And I encourage you to, um, to make that choice to invest in something that you believe in if, if it is these kinds of convenings. We welcome uh, individual contributors at every level and our email address is on the front of your program. If you want to be in touch, we're happy to chat further with you. But again, thank you to those who support our work. It really makes a difference. These things don't just magically happen. Uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to bring together great conversations with folks like yourselves. Um, thank you. And I want to thank Mike Curry, who's been working very hard for months <laughs> to put this program together and then the slew of programs that we'll be having uh, this semester. We're excited about it. I want to thank our guest today, uh, law professor Bill McGovern. Uh, thank you very much for coming. And an especially warm welcome to Gary King, who flew out from Cambridge to be with us. And um, I really congratulate you. I think this is just what academics should be doing. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, everybody.